0: So, Matt, I think you can see why I, I wanted Leah to talk about this. Like, yeah. Because you guys have been talking for, what, five minutes? And she's already wildly protective and giving you great career advice.
1: Yeah. I need it. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hey, Paul.
0: Hey, Matt. How are you?
1: Good. Uh, conspicuously absent on this episode is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Uh, Stuart, we miss you, buddy, but uh, I know you'll be back for the next one. Stuart is at a conference, a fancy conference, uh, mixing it up. But, uh, Paul, this, this episode, can you explain to us uh, the, the idea behind this episode?
0: Well, sure. Happy to. So for me, you know, as someone who's happily and comfortably already ensconced in a, a pretty cushy job in academic medicine, I, I don't need this episode so much. But for you, for someone who's now currently on the job hunt, I, I think that um, we decided that you need as much help as humanly possible. So we've invited <laughs> uh, the great Dr. Leah Justy to sort of tell us how to go about the job hunt, how to think about things before preparing for it, identifying a timeline the interview day, the whole nine, just to sort of maximize your chance to success, so I can continue to ride your coattails.
1: <laughs> as as always, this episode for me is totally self serving. So, uh, but I think it will also help our listeners, and that's the way uh, that's the way that I get that I can sleep with myself at night or live with myself. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, Dr. Chisti is currently an associate program director and the medical director of the resident outpatient practice at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. She completed her residency at Yale and went on to pursue a general internal medicine fellowship at UCSF. And she has a particular interest and expertise in medical education and the role of mentorship and career development. This episode is filled with tips and and pearls for you while you're on the job hunt, or maybe you want to switch jobs. Uh, This might help you think about what kind of job you want next. I think it's going to be really valuable. So without further ado, here's our interview with Dr. Aaliyah Chisti. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This is your host, Matt Watto, along with my co-host, Paul Williams. Hey, Paul.
0: Hey, Matt. How are you?
1: I am doing well, and we are very excited to have with us tonight Dr. Alia Chisti from Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, and she is going to teach us tonight all about uh, finding a job and and making sure that your career uh, starts off or continues to go in a positive direction. Isn't that right, Dr. Chisti?
2: Ooh, that's, that seems like a lot, (laughs) Um, but I'll try my best. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm really glad to be here.
1: Well, we're, we're really glad to have you. And we just, uh, I don't, I don't mean to put a lot of pressure on you, but I I think that we'll be able to offer a lot of valuable insights and tips for people that are out there looking for jobs. And uh, as I mentioned in pre-recording, selfishly, I'm, I'm going to be out there looking for a job soon. So that's how I choose all the episodes, things that, that benefit me. Right, Paul?
0: <laughs> yeah. And so ultimately, we'll hold Dr. Chisti solely responsible for however your career progresses over the next couple of decades.
2: <laughs> yeah. So yeah. no pressure. I didn't sign up for this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Well, to take your mind off that, why don't we just start with some, uh, some of our rapid fire questions? Um, sure. And, and the first one I like to ask is, when you're, when you're at like a fancy party, or maybe a not so fancy party, and people ask you the question, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that?
2: Ooh, I like to. I just say I'm in medicine,
1: and they and people also. If you told them you were an internal medicine physician, they they would not know what that is, for the most part.
2: Probably not. No, they always look at me strangely, and then when they hear that my husband's an ID doc, they're like, "Oh, that's so cool!" And I'm like, <laughs> "Why can't I get that reaction?"
0: <laughs> and it probably took me about three years before. Yeah, of, of actual practice before my mom even understood the difference between internal medicine and an intern. So I feel like that's just right out the gate. You're kind of losing.
1: <laughs> yeah. What is a book that has helped you in your career or in life?
2: So I'm going to take liberties with this question. Um, I love to read and I used to actually read a lot until I had my son. And um, there's probably two books that kind of get me through life. And that's because whenever I get depressed, I read them. And that amounts to about three times a year for Pride and Prejudice, and about one to two times a year for The Goblet of Fire from Harry Potter. I find it excellent escapist fare. And so they help me cope with my life, basically. Two great books.
1: (laughs) Excellent choices. Paul, any comments on those?
0: No, no, compared to Blood Meridian from whenever I had to answer this. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a different perspective as well. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, Dr. Chisti, what is your favorite medical app, something like an Hippocrates?
2: Um, so this is going to speak to my primary care background. I love the... EPSS app. Uh, It's an app that's from the USPSTF. And if you type in your patient characteristics, it tells you your favorite um, and most evidence-based screening recommendations um, based on the patient's demographics. So for all those listeners, trust me, download it. It'll help you a lot, especially if you go into internal medicine. Your preceptors in clinic will ask you a ton of questions about what your preventative, you know, your healthcare maintenance stuff is, that will give you all the answers.
1: Okay. And I just want to ask you one more of our rapid fire questions. Uh, What are you reading or when are you finding time to stay current with uh, evidence-based medicine?
2: That's tough. Uh, That's part of the reason why I'm in academics, because the residents ask me questions all the time. And sometimes I don't know the answer. So we look things up together all the time. Um, But my favorite go-to is actually New England Journal of Medicine Journal Watch. If you've ever gotten that, um, I strongly recommend it because it gives you a a synopsis every single day of the best like five articles that were published and gives you like a nice um relevant summary of each of those articles. And so if I ever know what I'm talking about, it's because I keep up to date with that.
1: Yes. I, I I also invest in that and actually have uh we've we've that's been a popular answer on on the podcast because it is a awesome. It's it's a it's the easiest way to stay ahead of the residents, which is, you know, essential if you're if you're an academic. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. <laughs>
1: All right. I want to move on and ask you some questions now. It is, is is this too late in the season to start looking for jobs now? Or when, when do you think people should start looking for jobs?
2: So I don't want to say that it's late in the season. Um, I do recommend to residents whenever they come talk to me that you should really start early. Earlier is better. Um, And this is from personal experience. So when I was applying for my job, for my current job, I was waiting until my husband matched an ID. And that was the first year that the match became part of your third year. And you found out um, in, I guess it was the first week of December. And so I was like, oh, I'll just wait till my husband matches. And then wherever he goes, um, he that's the city where I'll apply for jobs because he had applied all over the country. And when I sent out my first round of resumes, like my CV and cover letter, um, I had to... I got some feedback that I was actually on the second round of people who had already sent in and been interviewed. And if someone hadn't already declined a job at another institution where I'd interviewed, I wouldn't have been offered an interview. And so part of this is that I really encourage um, people who are looking for jobs to start probably around September, really, because by October. A lot of academic places, in particular, will have finalized their budgets and will know if they have enough money to hire a, for a new position. And so, you'll be getting a lot of resume, like CVs, right around that October, like September, October, November time. And the first round of interviews will happen in that time frame. So, if you are after that, you may not even be offered a job. You may not be offered an interview because that job may already be filled.
0: And Dr. Chisty, can I even sort of roll back? Even before sort of the application process, like I feel like in residency, there's certain, a chunk of residents who know they don't want to subspecialize. Know they probably want to do medicine, but above and beyond that, maybe don't have a great sense of how they want to do it. Like, how do you even have any sort of general advice in terms of to how to even decide where to start applying or what types of jobs to even start thinking about applying for?
2: So that's a huge question, Paul. Um, thank you for asking it. Um, when people are not sure what kind of job that they want, I really encourage them to do a lot of introspection because the, the way that you can achieve career satisfaction, I guess that's such a, um, a dangerous word. It's a dangerous two words, I suppose. Um, so there's some, some literature ish that if you were able to get a position where you're able to have your interests, your skills, and your values to overlap, that you may actually be able to achieve some sort of career satisfaction. And some of this um, has actually shaped a really neat self-assessment that was created out of UCSF for initially their PhDs, and that was then adapted for pediatric fellows and then later adapted for internal medicine residents. And basically what it does is it helps you to really rate Um, yourself on your own skills um, in teaching and clinical knowledge, research, mentoring, leadership. And then it helps you to actually distill out your, your most core values. Because if you're clear about what your most important values are, you're more likely to make career choices that are congruent with those values. So, you know, if you're at a place that, has the same values that you do, it's really easy for you to feel comfortable and happy in that job that you take. And then if you are able to also really understand what you're, like what really interests you, what makes, what you're fascinated with. And if you're able to do that, there's literature that shows that people enjoy working when they are doing tasks or learning about things that they find really interesting and engaging. So if you're able to um, make sure that all of those things are in, in, alignment um, there is a chance that you're gonna be able to kind of get a better like a job that's more suited to you because one you're going probably gonna have skills that are you know that you're gonna be good at something you're going for something that you really value um, or that matches your own core values and then you're interested in it
1: I wanted to just uh, I, I wanted to make a comment here uh, kind of at the sure. core of what you're saying kind of doing something like that like a questionnaire or a a decision tool to help you figure out what you want is kind of helping you get specific about it's helping you get specific about what you want. Because when I personally started approaching the job thing, it was like overwhelming because you could get a job anywhere in the country, especially if you're an internist, there's, there's jobs everywhere and there's all different types of jobs. And if you're not specific about what you want, you're going to be overwhelmed. And there's some, uh, I don't have the exact, uh, study to cite here, but there's been like, they've, they've looked at people like choosing a salad dressing and there's like a hundred salad mm-hmm. dressings in the salad dressing aisle. And actually you think like, oh, more choices is better, but it's actually not. And there's like kind of a happy medium. And it ch- turns out it's something like six salad dressings is like the ideal number. And yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think it was in JAMA uh, last okay. month. It was it was in Journal Watch, Paul. It was in Journal Watch.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have to subscribe to that. That sounds super
1: cool. Um, no, this is. I don't know if it was like a Dan Ariely thing. He has. Um, I think his book is called like the Upside of Rationality or Irrationality mm. or something. But uh, it was one of these um, behavioral psychologists that that kind of looked at this sort of thing. And I, and I just think that the salad dressing thing is. It might be like your job. Like you might want to limit yourself to like kind of narrow it down to a manageable number of jobs by being more specific.
2: Oftentimes, you know, as, as someone now on the mentorship end, like as a now mentor to residents, I almost do this informally with them. Uh, I really ask them to, for people who are coming to me with career advice, like I'm not really sure what to do. I ask them what's really important to them. Um, and you'd be surprised how oftentimes if I ask them like, what's really, really important to them you know, what are you really, really interested in? What are the things you value? I mean, that's, you know, what do they think they're really good at? Maybe they're pretty good at it. They want to gain a little, few more skills. Like it just, you can actually guide a lot of people through this and it it doesn't feel as artificial as like doing like a self-assessment or doing a tool. Um, But that's, I think, because I've already, you know, I'm familiar with and I've, I've been able to um, internalize a lot of what the tool already does. But anecdotally, at least, I found a lot of residents and even students sometimes um, find a lot of benefit out of out of just talking out loud about what their values and interests and skills are and seeing maybe how they might coincide.
0: I think that's right. And I think on the flip side, and this is it seems so stupidly obvious to me now, but I just didn't think about this when I was looking for a job. It's just talking to the people who are doing the job that you're looking for and actually finding mm-hmm. out just what their day looks like and exactly what they do and what what things they wish they'd known. Because I feel like, you know, you get exposed to outpatient medicine, you get exposed to inpatient medicine, but what that looks like once you're done with residency is completely different than what it looks like when you're in residency. And I just, I don't think I fully appreciated that while I was sort of looking for work.
1: So Paul, I, I think, um, so we've kind of, to, to recap what we've talked out, about so far, I guess the first step, and I kind of jumped the gun on this, but the first step is to figure out what what skills you have what interests you have what you really value and that's where you're going to kind of decide what kind of jobs that you that you even want to look at so you you're, you're going to be specific there and then something like 9 months in advance or so you're definitely going to want to start reaching out to places and and seeing what jobs are available in that field so probably you should do your preliminary research between like, I guess, 12 months out and nine months out. And then around then you should start sending out your CV. Exactly right. And now now when someone's at the point where they're ready to send out their CV, do you recommend a cover letter? Is is that a, an outdated thing that's not used anymore? And And what are some common mistakes you see here?
2: I still recommend doing some sort of cover letter. And the cover letter is not a formal letter anymore that needs to be exactly on one page, um, but it's going to be in the form most likely of an email. And so you want to make sure that that email is of an appropriate length, uh, something not too long, because I know that the, the ideal length, I guess, for an email is something that fits on one screen. So something, but you want to be able to introduce yourself, who you are what you're looking for and what your ties to the institution may be. Like when I was applying, I made sure to mention that I was dedicated to Philadelphia. Like my husband had found, um, uh, you know, had to move there for his job. So I was definitely going to be needing a job in Philadelphia. And I think people want to hire someone that they're sure is going to be more likely to accept a position. So uh, I, I would say that you definitely want to introduce yourself. Focus on why you're interested in that position that you're applying for. And then um, also kind of talk about what you believe you can add to the institution and what the institution also can, you know, what's ideal about the institution um, for for you.
1: And who are you sending this cover letter and CV to? How do you identify the right place to send it? Because I think that is not as easy as it sounds.
2: It's not. Uh, a lot of it. So institutions vary. You can look for jobs, so this is probably jumping the gun a little bit, but it depends on where you're going to be applying. Uh, Some jobs will post, you know, in the New England Journal, that's actually how I found my fellowship, which is another story for another day, I suppose, Uh, but you can go through the New England Journal, you can go through ACP, you can go through SGIM, they all have, uh, these are Uh, The American College of Physicians, the Society of General Internal Medicine, they all have kind of career centers um, where jobs are posted and you can go through those types of listings. If you're going for an academic position, uh, you can sometimes those will be posted. Uh, and some places, for example, Penn here in Philly, they actually do all of their hiring through online, um, through like a central resource that's through their human resources. You would go to, you can find the link to on how to apply on their general medicine website. Um, but for most places, you actually do it by applying, like sending your information directly, most likely to whatever whoever your division chair is, uh, or your section chief is. And so that's basically what I did. I sent my CV and cover letter to all of the division chairs or chiefs. So people who are the heads of general medicine. So that's how I would recommend doing it if you're going for academics.
1: How was the response rate to that kind of thing? Do they respond directly or do they kind of farm that out to somebody else?
2: So most of the time they actually responded directly to me. And so that was um, a very positive experience that I had with that they yeah they didn't you know farm it out to anybody but so I found that sometimes some people will just mass email a ton of faculty I don't know if that's the best approach I would say definitely go through your division chief or your section chief um, and if you're going to you If you're looking for a hospitalist section, if they have a chief of hospital, like hospital medicine, email that person directly, uh, because I wouldn't go directly for the chair of medicine, for example, because that person is not, will probably have some say in hiring or firing you, but they don't, they aren't going to be the right person in terms of your own little department, like within the larger department.
1: You, you mentioned in there mass mailing and emailing recruiters. At, at, we're using recruiters is that what what are the downsides to that is that something that you recommend people use because if you if you're I, it seems like once you're a second or third year resident you start to get these recruiter emails or, or recruiter just these these cardboard things that come in the mail every day
2: um yes that can be very overwhelming um i would say so for the recruiters if you are not a hundred percent sure where you want to go where you need or you have a very tight timeline within which to get to someplace, um, I think recruiters are fine. They can really help you, facilitate you getting a job opportunity. But I don't recommend them because they actually are not out for you. They're out for the institution that's hiring them to recruit. So, and they have to get paid somehow. And usually that payment either comes out of a bonus that you might've gotten for signing on or some, some form of, I guess benefits maybe that you would have gotten some of that money that Could have potentially gone to you will now go to the recruiter
1: Sometimes it's it's the the hospital website sort of funnels you to a physician recruiter Where if you try to get in touch with the division chief, they're kind of their emails aren't public or it's they're hard to find And they kind of push you towards a physician recruiter for that specific institution Is that different than the ones that come through the email? Like I think merit hawkins is the one that I get a lot of stuff from
2: Yeah <laughs> Um, so a, a lot of, of this um, oh. <laughs> episode, um, I I would say that some places do have like a physician recruitment kind of division that will help to organize um, getting interviews and things like that. That's a little bit different. So that I would definitely feel more comfortable with that uh, than I would having recruiters who are mass mailing you trying to get you to sign up for a job.
0: That's right. So, and then there's the recruiting group. firms which are subcontracted right. by the hospital, and they're the ones that right. are, tend to send out the mass emails. And so, right. just to add to to, to Leah's point, um, you know, it costs—I can't remember what the last time I read was—something like sixty thousand dollars to recruit a primary care physician. And so, I think the point that she made—that it has to come out of somewhere—it's um, not an act of charity. So, it, it just—it's you know, that may sort of clip your benefits or come out of your salary or a bonus or, or someplace else. And then the other consideration, and this is not to cast aspersions, but I, I think I'd read somewhere, and and Dr. just can correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of the overall gestalt is, you know, if a place needs to subcontract out someone to recruit for them, it should probably raise some questions as to why that's necessary. So not saying that it's, not saying that, that just immediately means the place is not a quality place to work, but it just you should at least ask yourself first, why are they using or subcontracting oh out goodness. a position or a recruiting group?
1: Now, once you have identified, so you've, you've kind of gone through this where you've emailed the section chiefs or you've reached out to the director of hospital medicine, or you've kind of contacted a person that, that might even have direct hiring capability, and now you've been invited to an interview, what does the work, what, what sort of work do you recommend doing before you get to that interview to make sure that you put your best foot forward and really knock it out of the park?
2: That's a great question. I don't think we spend enough time talking about the interview process, and that's so integral to whether or not someone gets hired or not. Uh, One of the things that I will say is that it's really important for you to know what you want or what you're looking for and why you do what you do. Know your objectives, know your career goals, know what you're desiring for your job, and know for you too, like what your interests and strengths are so that you're able to speak uh, speak about it when asked. It's important that you do do some homework about the hospital or the clinic that you're interviewing with so that you know how you can add to that faculty uh, or that facility. Uh, and know, And that'll also show, I think, during the interview process that you're actually interested enough to have researched them. And what else I would say is that you can you can even try to do something i i encourage some of my residents to do is try to even create like a little elevator pitch about who you are what you do and like and why you do what you do in a, like less than 30 seconds because that'll really help the person who you're speaking to understand what your main purpose is and like what you're looking for and um you know what you can really add to whatever institution you go to.
1: Right. So you don't want to show up on that day and, and they, and, and not really have a good, a well-formulated answer when they ask you like why you want to work there. Right. That's, that's probably good. I like the elevator pitch. That's a good, (laughs) that's a good way to put it.
2: I I mean, I, I know it sounds a little silly, but it's borrowing from the business literature. And I think we really need to, to do that because, we we expect doctors to be able to do so many things, but we don't train them to do any of these things, like be good teachers, be good leaders of teams, to like know how to like run a business if you want to run your own business, you know, like your own practice. Like we don't teach anyone how to do this. So how do you expect them to be able to do um do that without any type of um training or mentorship? And so um I borrow a lot from the business literature when it comes to this type of stuff.
0: No, I think that's right. i I tend to not I don't think I would want to know someone who's inherently good at self-promotion, but i can I think I can speak for a lot of positions when I say I in particular, am awful at sort of self-promotion and sort of describing the things that I'm passionate about without actually probably a little bit of preparation. So I think it's that's a great tip
2: and and I don't think it's, you know, I don't want you to think about it as like I, mean, I guess it is self-promotion, but if people you know, <laughs> but I, I also have a really negative idea about self-promotion, But this is more about like, you know, who you are, what you care about. Like, this is the stuff that's going to make you um, an asset to any institution because you're going to be passionate about it. So I want to hear about it, you know, if I'm going to be recruiting you or trying to hire you for a position.
0: Right. Of course, it's self-advocacy more than self-promotion.
2: Right. Thank you. I love that.
1: And uh, you mentioned the business literature. Uh, I I mentioned this to you in the pre, kind of the the pre- Interview the the mm-hmm. guy one of the guys that I've been reading Ramit Sethi uh, last name spelled yeah. S- S-E-T-H-I, he has some courses. Uh, Most of of the stuff is free, and it kind of talks about how to negotiate for a salary, how to find your dream job, and some of the basic stuff that he talks about is really just researching the heck out of it when you're looking for a job, kind of talking to Mm -hmm. people that work there, getting inside, like finding out what is this institution struggling Mm -hmm. with, what might your skills be able to help them with. That way when you go in there and you're talking to them, you're not asking them like, uh, what's my salary going to be? How many days off do I get? Like that, that kind of stuff, you're going to be able to negotiate. What he says is really find out what, what are their pain points? How can you help them with that? Because that is going to be, it's going to make you seem like a very well-prepared applicant. And also Mm -hmm. you're going to be offering them something. It's got to be win-win. I mean, they're not going to just hire you and have it be one-sided. So I think it's just simple stuff that not necessarily, it's not something that you're necessarily taught in medical school so you you might not know how to do it um so right. I can put links to that in the show notes for people um and and that would be a nice compliment I think to this episode certainly it's what I'm uh, part of what I'm using to help me prepare for my upcoming interviews paul do you uh where do you want to take it from here buddy
0: yeah I, I'd like I want to roll it back a little bit I know we are, we were in a hurry to offer you the job, but I'd like to go back and and then Dr. Justy touched on some of the resources to actually find out who's offering jobs. So I think she mentioned, uh, ACP's website has a nice, uh, forum, uh, New England Journal of Medicine has a great career guide for yeah. I think a lot of the fields of internal medicine, but I did want to ask sort of what other resources would you recommend using, um, just an in initial job hunt to even kind of see where you want to start sending out your CV and cover letter?
2: I, I have to say that you have to use your, your network. You have to use your program director. You have to use senior people who know people at different institutions because that can be a way to, uh, and something I didn't mention is that I cold called, I cold emailed people, but there's really a benefit to knowing someone at an institution because that person can set up some type of email introduction and that person can act almost as like an indirect reference for who you are. So that, I would say you have to use your your mentors, your program directors, and your colleagues because they're the people who have connections at different places and can get you maybe insider information that may not be readily available um, elsewhere. Uh, other than that, you definitely can use the online resources like Paula's mentioned through the professional societies, like Society of General Internal Medicine, The American College of Physicians actually has a really, really nice career center directed especially towards residents uh, and fellows and helps you even to think about what you might, what questions you might want to ask yourself before looking for a job, um, like academic versus not academic, urban versus rural, you know, all those types of questions. And then um, they also have a ton of like YouTube videos (laughs) that are like on How do you interview? What's a good interview look like? What's a bad interview look like? And they have a, uh, you know, and then other. um, They also have, of course, like links like where people are posting job opportunities. Definitely go through, go to your journals. Like JAMA has um, a whole section on, uh, on you know how to look for a job or where people are advertising jobs, and you can just always narrow that down by city, but types of jobs, specialty, same thing for the New England Journal of Medicine. And, and like Paul said, I, I love the New England Journal of Medicine career guide. It's, oh, yeah. it's like, it's fantastic. And actually that's how I found my fellowship when I was applying outside of, right out of residency, I didn't really know what I wanted to do at all. And I was one day just perusing the paper copy. This is, tells you how old I am, the paper copy of the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, there was a an opportunity for this general medicine clinician educator fellowship at UCSF. And just like, you know, I, I'm not much information I just applied and I happened to get the <laughs> position because I might know legit my preceptor and clinic had told me that intern like he was, one of my, um, like one of my mentors and he was like, you know, interns say they really enjoy working with you because you like to teach. And just on that alone, I applied to my clinician educator, like fellowship. So I knew nothing and I was so naive when I applied. <laughs> um, but the New England Journal of Medicine can be a really interesting resource for even, as you can see, non-traditional jobs. Where do you stand? Sorry,
0: no, no, I'm sorry. I, I just- In terms of other, the sort of the more commercial sites, so things like Doximity or LinkedIn, do you think there's value in those as well?
2: You have to utilize the internet and whatever resources there are. And I think people do use LinkedIn and it's just another way, it's a larger scale networking uh, because you meet people, like you know people you've ever met and they become your, whatever, your contact on LinkedIn. I think you have to use that to a certain extent. I just can't reliably say how, how important or integral it's gonna be, but I'm assuming it's gonna be quite big um, moving forward.
0: Right, but I think it speaks to your original point, which I love that, that networking is is so key because your, your program director, I know even in my current role, I get a couple emails a week from people that are just looking for someone for a right. primary care job. So it's just ask your program directors and, and people in, in similar positions because they they will know of things that exist. So I yeah. think that's such a great point to
1: make. Just to jump back on the the LinkedIn thing before we go on to the next point. I. I I think having a profile on LinkedIn that is professional that gives at least a basic idea of who you are is—it's an easy way for when you when you cold email somebody at like your dream dream institution, they're going to jump on LinkedIn or Facebook and look you up. And if and if you have like a creepy profile with no picture on there, they're they're not—they're going to be like, oh, this is going to the bottom of the pile.
0: I know. what if your profile is creepy with the picture? Do you have any recommendations about that?
1: face transplant (gasps) paul i don't know
0: (laughs) just me holding my cats maybe i'm in pajamas maybe not
1: that's that would be cute paul i think that would be good yeah
2: but i think you have to use you have to use the online resources because that's how people are finding jobs and that's how people do i guess scope you out when they google you (laughs)
1: Paul, are there any other big questions you have? One of the things I did want to ask about is kind of contract review. Do you hire a lawyer? Is that essential or just recommended? But anything else that you had, Paul?
0: Uh, I guess, and I mean, this this could be an entire episode into itself, but just in terms of the CV, you know, any, any sort of broad tips or suggestions you would have of things to include or things to avoid putting in your CV?
2: I think people don't give themselves enough credit for all the different things that they do. Everything counts. So make sure that you, I always tell people, especially when they're coming out, you have to highlight the different clinical experiences you've had, because if you've trained, for example, at Temple, I'm sorry, I'm bringing so everything back to Temple, you have a lot of subspecialty specialty experiences and not a lot, not every institution is going to have the same type of experiences that you're going to have. So if you've done some training in, you know, like heart failure or CCU or ICU or anc or Whatever it is, and that, those are all things that make you really marketable because you are showing that you have specialized training uh, in all these different rotations, and you may feel more comfortable handling those, those patients. Um, also, I, I, I always recommend that whatever talk you've given, even if you think it's like, oh, it was a mandatory talk I had to give as a second-year resident, that counts. So put that down. <laughs> um, and I would just say that have someone review your CV before you sent it out. Because you want to make sure that, one, all of your identifying information, everything is correct on there. Because that's what people are going to use to contact you. I had an, an experience last year where the person actually accidentally misspelled their email address. And the person was trying to be offer that person a fellowship, but the, the email address had been misspelled on the CV. So just make sure you review all, Have someone review it. You review it yourself because they can also sometimes having like an outside perspective, especially from like a program director or someone who's involved with this type of stuff a lot. They can have a lot to offer in terms of how to organize your CV to make it reader friendly and to so that you're able to highlight the things that that would be important for someone who's on the like the the recruiting
1: end. Right. And some, some of the stuff you have on there, it might make sense to you in your head, but if someone else reads it, they might not understand what it is. So definitely worthwhile. That's why, uh, my wife, my wife is a, a great proofreader. So she's, uh, <laughs> find, find someone like that, that can, that can, that it likes to do that kind of thing. I don't know why my, lo- my wife loves reading and editing CVs. So it's, it been funny. It's been nice for me.
0: So uh, that's okay. great advice, Matt. So for for the audience at home, just if you can marry someone who really loves proofreading and looking over CVs, yeah. that's really <laughs> something or, you can do. Yeah.
1: With or or send send us send us your CV to curbsiders at gmail.com. dot <laughs> and uh, for for Follow one on face. for one lucky for one lucky uh, listener, my wife will proofread your CV. <laughs> I think I think Paul, we're going to offer that as an actual thing. So first person I, to send me their CV, I will uh, my wife will proofread it for you. And she'll be, I'll, I'll have to text her when I get off the air to uh, let her know that. <laughs> um, okay. So last question, you've, you've gotten a job offer, you've done all the things right that, that we've been talking about. Uh, do, you, do you have somebody review it? Or how, how do you know, like, let's say you get multiple offers. How do you know, like, mm-hmm. do, do they give you, okay, I need to hear back in a week, a day, a month. Is there is that job like going on a rolling basis? How does that work?
2: So they'll usually give you some type of time frame, usually one to two weeks, I would say, on average, that I've heard to be the most commonly, I guess, given time frame for uh, accepting a job. You can always negotiate that time. Let's say you're waiting for another job offer that seems to be something that you would really, 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 really want. uh, And this one is something you would really really want instead of really, 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 um, then you could always be like, you know, um, I just need a little bit more time to think about this. Can I have, can I have until X day? And most times people will be flexible. It depends on uh, the organization. The most of the time I have heard and will say that you should probably have a lawyer take a look at it if you can, because I don't understand a lot of the legal jargon. Most of the time the institution is trying to protect itself. So there are be things that you may want to negotiate like a uh, there's like a clause in some, what is it, a non-compete, for example. So in Philly, for example, there are like four or five academic institutions in a very close radius. And most of the institutions have a non-compete, which means that you can't practice in a certain mile radius if you decide to leave your current job. So you may want to negotiate that because what if you don't aren't, you know you want to stay in Philly but maybe a better opportunity will you know, will open up in Philadelphia for you and so you want to move to a different institution that would be really hard if you have a non compete for example so I would definitely encourage you to have a lawyer take a look at it I would if you can if you have that luxury I think you should totally do it
1: I will probably get somebody to look at my contract when, it, if I am offered one, Good. hopefully I will be at, by some, some institution. Sure well, I would like to ask you at this point, if you have any take-home points for the listeners, just to kind of sum things up.
2: Uh, Matt, I would say one, take some time, even before you are getting ready to think about the job hunt, just take some Time with yourself, maybe talk to your mentors, and that was something that I didn't get a chance to talk to you guys about is the role of mentorship in all of this Um, because that is really really important because they can oftentimes help you to really clarify what you what you are looking for yourself, and if you're struggling with questions, they can help you to to figure out the answers to that. If they can't answer it, or they can help you to talk to people who may um, be able to give you insight into things that you're that you're struggling with internally. So really take time to think internally about what you're good at, what you're interested in, what is really, really important to you in terms of your values. Um, Work on your CV and cover letter as much as you can between 12 and nine months before. So that about nine months prior to the time you need a job, you are sending your information out there. Don't give up, keep resending it. If you don't hear anything back, some people get buried in their email and they don't, they're not good at responding right away. So just keep sending them, um, until you hear something back and, um, don't be afraid to use other resources, you know, definitely reach out to people you know, some attendings, they might've come from different institutions. They might know people at those other institutions reach out to them to get contacts with people. And, um, and don't be afraid to even email people yourself.
1: I think, I think that's a great summary. I am ready to go out there and and get, get my dream job. And I will, uh, I will either blame you if I do not get a good job or I will, (laughs) I will, I will praise you if I get a, a great job. So, uh, listeners, we'll we'll let you know. We'll keep you updated. Wonderful. <laughs> hey, Paul, you got any? You got anything else for us?
0: No, no. I mean, this has been a jam-packed episode. We have uh, our first contest. We have the entire future <laughs> of your career. I, I don't. <laughs> I can't think of anything to add. <laughs> and okay. if
2: there are people who want to talk or get maybe access to either like a self assessment or anything like that. Please, can you is there any way you can send them my email information? I don't know if you want to make that available. You can uh, it's that's I up would...
1: to you. If you want to give out your email address on air, that's fine. We have uh <laughs> lots of listeners, so I uh <laughs> but please do.
2: I mean, I don't I I don't know what to recommend, but I I would like to be helpful. So if people want to talk, I mean, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> My email address is alia.chisty@tuh.temple.edu. at tuh.temple.edu. That's spelled A-L-I-A dot C-H-I-S-T-Y at tuhs.temple.edu. Please feel free to contact me with questions. I'd be happy to help.
1: All right. Well, that is a very... Oh, my God. Very, I can't believe
2: I just did that. That yeah, is well, a very
1: they, generous they, offer. And if you decide that you, you want me mind, to cut... We can take that out. Yeah, we could take that out. But I, I don't... I give out our email address on the air all the time, and I'm not... I'm not overwhelmed with emails. We get, a, we get a healthy, healthy amount. So I think you'll be okay.
2: No problem. And thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
1: Thanks so much. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This helps others discover the show. And uh, we are committed to providing you with a great show. So please send us your emails at thecurbsiders at gmail.com and tell us one thing you love or hate about the show or uh, suggest a guest for an upcoming show or a topic for an upcoming show. And uh, you can follow us on our pages on Facebook or on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Matthew Watto.
0: And this has been Paul Williams. Good night.